<clears throat> okay, um, last week we picked up in the middle of Paul's doxology in verse 18 and began by noting who it is that is the head of the church. Um, and, and as a consequence, who it is that is not the head of the church and took some practical instruction from that. Second, we learned what it means that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. We had already encountered this idea of Jesus being the firstborn earlier on in Colossians 1. Um, <clears throat> so we, we retreaded some of that territory, but ultimately what we, what we understood was um, that, that he, he was the only to be and the only one who ever will be raised from the dead by the power of his own righteousness. That is one thing that makes him firstborn from the dead. And then second, <clears throat> he was the first... He was the first to be resurrected and not die a second time. Um, all those who preceded Jesus in being resurrected by Jesus, ultimately, unless somebody finds them, as far as I know, they went on home uh, to, to God. And Jesus rose never to die again. That makes him uh, preeminent, the firstborn uh, from the dead. Third, we tried to appreciate that the fullness of God indwelt Jesus. So there's two truths here. First, if you want to know what God is like, you have complete freedom to look in your Bible at the person and work of Jesus Christ. And everything that you see of him paints the picture for us of who God is and what God is like. That's first. Second, Jesus is not part God. <clears throat> he is completely God. So we learned um, some of what is meant by this theological term, the hypostatic union. Um, fourth, we learned that Jesus, through his redemptive work, is going to bring peace into uh, our existence, which is up to now and will until he comes back or we die. Our existence is kind of marked constantly by chaos warfare, violence, and bloodshed. I mean our existence as a race, not, not maybe yours individually. Um, although maybe it has been. Um, the point is that because Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross, ultimately we have in view this promise that things are going to be set back right and that all that's been impacted by the curse of the fall is ultimately going to be undone. Things will be remade. Fifth, we mark the reality that all of us who know Jesus Christ have a former life. Paul says, you once were alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, but now you've been reconciled to him through uh, his death. And finally, we took a warning against shifting away from the gospel. <clears throat> Colossians 1.24 is where we pick up this morning. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church <clears throat> of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. 
the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, that's to the saints, okay? To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. <clears throat> now, we are dipping our toes into the issues at hand in Colossae. So Paul starts using this word um, mystery quite a bit. And I just wanted to tell you, we're going to see why in the coming weeks, not today. Um, but I did want to point it out to you. I, I'm not, so that lest you, if you're a theological scholar, you don't, I don't want you to leave church judging me too harshly as incompetent to, uh, to proclaim the word. We're going to get there, but today we're going to focus on something else. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, <clears throat> I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So Paul's opening didactic salvo addresses the issue of suffering because we need so much help in this department um, to, uh, to appreciate his mindset and to adopt it as our own. Five things, maybe six, you can think about. What is the purpose of suffering? What is the purpose of suffering in the life of a child of God? What is the design of, of God in ordaining and allowing suffering? What is accomplished by suffering? How is God glorified by suffering? And if we know the role of suffering, can we appreciate suffering or is it only to be endured? In Acts 5, verse 40, it says, When they had called in the apostles... They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So after a public beating, grown men rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. That's what Acts 5, 40, 41 and 42 is telling us. 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Fiery trials are not supposed to surprise us. <clears throat> okay. Fiery trials are not supposed to surprise us instead of surprise. When we share in Christ's sufferings, we should be able to rejoice and be glad. So let me suggest to you that this equanimity, this um, nobody knows what that word means. I shouldn't say that. Not enough people know what that word means. But it's the best word. Equanimity is like, uh, it's, it's mental calmness or composure or, um, 
or evenness of temper, especially in times of great distress. That's what equanimity is. Uh, I want to suggest to you that that equanimity is not something that you have to muster up, all right? This is so important, but it doesn't help for me to just keep saying that, right? I need you to listen to me because you you may not be suffering right now, but eventually you're going to, and you're going to wish you knew this, all right? Or or you're not thinking about suffering right now, but eventually you're going to be thinking about suffering and you're going to need this. Mental calmness in the face of great distress is not something that you have to produce. I'm relieving you of that obligation. You don't have to manufacture uh, a calmness of spirit and mind in the face of intense difficulty. You don't have to do that. I want to relieve you of the suspicion that because you don't imagine you're going to handle persecution very well, you should be alarmed, squirming, uncomfortable, or otherwise filled with doubt about your own capability to produce calmness in the midst of trial. In fact, I bet some of you are tempted, I mean, Carrie just left, I bet some of you are tempted to tune out as I'm preaching simply because we don't like this subject. We don't like it. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to talk about it. Give me something practical, preacher. How's this going to help my marriage? How's this going to help my finances? But we have to talk about it because Paul's talking about it. What is the purpose of suffering in the life of a child of God? What is the design of God in ordaining and allowing suffering? What is accomplished by suffering? How does it glorify God? And if you know the role, can you learn to appreciate suffering or is it just something that you have to grit your teeth and endure? Because the Bible doesn't leave a lot of space here. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, this is Jesus talking, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. But, but not you, right? Because you're going to be cool enough about your Christianity that the world won't hate you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they're also going to persecute you. If they keep my word, they'll keep yours. In John 16, Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will, not you might, it's you will have tribulation. Oh, well, contextually, he's talking to the disciples who were going to become the apostles, the pillars of the church. He doesn't mean all Christians. Matthew 10, 22, to prove I don't agree with that statement. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Philippians 1, 29, it has been granted to you, well, Paul's not writing to the apostles, he's writing to the Philippian church and us. 
It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. So again, this concept isn't hidden away, right? And Paul brings it up, like concerning himself anyway, this idea of, <coughs> of rejoicing in the midst of suffering because as we move through Colossians, <coughs> pardon me, the issue of Paul's credibility is going to be, it's like everywhere in the margins. It's extremely important. The fact of the matter is, uh, some people, when they see Christians suffer, they, they, they assume that that's proof that the Christian is wrong. Does that make sense? They, they look at the church and what the church is going through, and, and if the church is going through trouble or tribulation, they think, aha, see, they're wrong. They claim to be the people of God, but God certainly would not allow his people to go through something like that. That's the reasonable conclusion of those observing Christians when they suffer. Those in the Colossian church who were advancing various like uh, worldly philosophies under the guise of Christian doctrine would certainly point to Paul's circumstances as evidence that he shouldn't be listened to. Okay, so where's Paul? Well, Paul's in house arrest, under house arrest in Rome. And he's writing to the Colossians. So what are the, what are the pointy-headed theologians in Colossae going to say when this letter comes? Why would you listen to Paul? He's in prison. Obviously, God's not happy with him. So Paul, writing to them from, from prison, for him it's important that he addresses the fact that suffering is not an automatic indication of God's displeasure. You tracking? So we, today, need to address suffering. I've already covered the fact of suffering. Jesus told us we would suffer persecution, period. Right? And we looked at seven passages that make that crystal clear. Second, and really I think this might be more important <laughs> than the fact of suffering. Suffering is not, look, <laughs> let me pause. Because anytime I say something that might be heretical, I feel like I should warn you. Suffering is not something that happens to us. It is something that happens for us. We're not hapless victims of circumstances. Three purposes I believe God has for us when we suffer. First, if we go back to last summer, James 1, fiery trials. Remember, these things are happening uh, and they're, formative. They shape our faith. Trials do. They purify our faith. We don't have time to rehearse all this, so I'll just point you to um, August 28, 2022 on sbcne.org on the sermons page. You can go listen to James 1, 1 through 3. And the one after that is actually pretty helpful too. Um, which sounds self-congratulatory because I'm the one that preached it, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the word of God on Sunday morning. So anyway, if you need a refresher, trials heat us up, God scrapes off the dross, and our faith is purified. Bottom line, 
okay? Second purpose God has is John 15, one and two. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit, okay? So it, it hurts, we don't like it, but we need to be pruned so we can bear more fruit. It hurts, we don't like it, but it needs to happen so that we can be more fruitful. Walking in a manner worthy of Jesus requires that we be pruned from time to time. There are things about us <clears throat> which are not morally evil, but they're not best. When I first got married, for instance, uh, I remained firmly committed, and I wasn't alone in this, uh, early in my marriage, I remained firmly committed to mul massively multiplayer online gaming, right? Now, if you do MMOs, it takes a time commitment. We're talking two and a half, three hours at least a night. I stayed committed to that after the birth of Sam, and I thought I was going to stay committed to it after the birth of Kate, but Kate had other plans. And Lisa, you know, simultaneously hit the end of her rope with me, you know, disappearing from 8.30 on in the evening to do whatever pleased me while she continued to, you know, deal with now two babies. Uh, there was one night in particular where, uh, I don't remember, I think she came and found me. She didn't have the baby with her, but she came and found me and just let me know that she was going to be showering. And if I wanted the baby cared for, I probably needed to stop. Right? So what happened there was gaming got pruned out of my life. There was nothing morally wrong with playing video games, but it wasn't best for me as a dad, as a husband. Right? It's a bad example. It's just an example of something being removed. Not the pain of pruning. That's worse. That's worse. That's not, oh, I had to give up video games. Do you understand what I mean? Third purpose, and this one seems bad, but it's not. It just isn't. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8. It's for discipline you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. There will be times when you will be brought low because of some sin which needs to be rooted out of your heart. Listen, love the idea of therapy. I love the idea of psychological help. I love the idea of um, getting medication when you're sick. But some of you, you really need to hear this. The reason you're depressed is because your conscience is plaguing you. The reason you're depressed is because you, you are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You hate God. You refuse to bend the knee to King Jesus. And so he is pressing down on you with his hand. And guess what? When the hand of God is against you, there's nothing you're going to do to change that. No amount of psychotherapy, no amount of therapy, period. No amount of finding new friends, new boyfriends, new interests, new hobbies, new drugs. None of that's going to change when the hand of God is pressing on you because God loves you enough to say, I'm not leaving you in this rebellious, hateful, hurtful condition because it's self-destructive. So I'm going to stop you. I'm going to, I'm going to afflict you. I'm going to put you in pain. I'm going to make you suffer so that you come to your senses. You hate church. You hate the people of God and your life sucks. Well, guess what? 
There's a thread running through how much your life sucks. It's your resentment and your rebellion toward God that's the problem. It's not a chemical imbalance. It's a heart issue. Now, if you love God and you're seeking to obey him, seeking to uh, love his people and have fellowship and you're in the word and you're doing everything as far as you can tell right and you still feel like that, I'm guessing you let us know. We can pray for you. I'm guessing if you go get some help because well, maybe you've got a personality disorder that somebody with degrees hanging on the wall can help you sort out, great. Maybe you need some medication. I don't know. Maybe. Go, go get meds if you're doing all those other things. But listen, seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added to you. It is so pointless to keep slapping band-aids on your mental problems while you shake a fist at the one who created you. You shouldn't feel better. You should be miserable. You're designed for fellowship with God and he has done everything necessary for you to walk with him and yet you reject him. I hope he makes you more miserable because when you finally bend a knee and, and, and present a broken heart to King Jesus, you will find joy unspeakable and full of glory, period. So one of the purposes of God is to bring us low because we have some sin which needs to be rooted out of our heart and life. All three of these purposes of God are, are about, about our faith, our fruit, or our function. Okay, It's not that God is sadistic and enjoys afflicting us. It's not that God is sadistic and enjoys afflicting us. He is for you. He wants to grow you. So I can rejoice when I'm suffering because I know that God's at work in me. Amen? That's part of it. I'm not saying, and there's the answer, let's pray. That's a small part of it. It hurts, that means he's at work. God is always at work in the pain points in your life. Always. Until you go to hell, where you do nothing but be in pain and suffer mental anguish, possibly physical anguish. But as long as there's life, if you're in pain, God is at work. It doesn't mean that I rejoice that I'm suffering. There's a difference. Do you hear me? So I rejoice because I know God's at work. I don't rejoice that I'm suffering. <clears throat> so there's the fact of suffering. God's clear, it's gonna happen. And then there's the reality that suffering doesn't just happen to us, it happens for us. And then finally, Colossians 1.24, which is different. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. This is something else entirely. This is God's purpose for others in our suffering. Do you see it? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. What on earth does Paul mean here? For instance, um, I'll turn it over to you, those of you who feel like this is boring, to come up and explain to me what Paul means by I am filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Why don't you break that down for us? It's kind of befuddling, isn't it? Something lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, as it relates to his atonement, we know nothing is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He did everything that needed to be done in order to bring us... Uh, 
uh, out of the wrath-filled gaze of God and put us into the love-filled gaze of God. That's what the atonement accomplished. So I disagree with this idea. And if you, you know, swung over to your commentary real quick that's built into your Bible app, I bet you're going to see this. I disagree with this idea that the church is somehow a literal continuation of the incarnation of Christ. Jesus does not need to suffer any more than he did for us to be saved. And we are not, through our sufferings, adding anything to his merit. That's not what it means. I disagree with this idea, and I might be wrong, that Jesus is yet suffering to accomplish our redemption. Uh, and you might say, well, of course he's not. Yeah, but there are those who say he is suffering vicariously through his people. Mm, I disagree. I believe that two truths exist simultaneously. One, Jesus is perfectly content seated at the right hand of God, glorified, having finished the work of redemption. That's a truth. Two, I believe that Jesus really cares what we are going through. I believe he's really touched by what happens to us. So it's not about atonement, but it is about, in some sense, it's about advancing the gospel, right? God has ordained that the suffering of Christians is part of the process by which the church grows. We see this when persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, right? Remember in Acts, uh, all the disciples are hanging out together. The church is growing. Thousands are being added to their number day by day. They're sharing all things together. <clears throat> Nobody is going out into the uttermost parts of the world doing what Jesus said. So then persecution happens and they scatter like ants. And then you get the church planted in Antioch. And from there, missionary journeys are launched out into the uttermost parts of the earth. The disciples hadn't gone out into the uttermost parts of the earth. They were cloistered in Jerusalem. Persecution begins in earnest. They scatter. We see this in Paul's ministry. He goes to a town. He preaches. People get saved. A church gets established. They're hanging out together. Persecution arises. Paul moves on. Goes to the next town. Preaches the gospel. People get saved. A church gets established. They're hanging out together. Persecution arises. Paul moves on. Persecution drives the growth of the church. We see this in church history, most obviously in the Reformation. What drives the Reformation? Well, persecution of people who say that justification is by faith alone and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the scripture alone. That, that drives the Reformation, persecution of that. Why does Paul call it filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Because... Even though suffering is ordained by God as a means by which the church grows, Jesus still takes the suffering of his people personally. What does he say to Paul on the road to Damascus? <clears throat> Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ takes it personally. So when we suffer for our faith, when we are persecuted, when disagreeable people treat us badly because of the decisions we make based on the convictions we hold, I'll give you an example, just to stir everybody up and create a bunch of unnecessary strife. Let me just tell you, the CDC and the World Health Organization and the president and the mayor and the city council will never shut down any church that I am pastoring. It's not going to happen. 
Now, if that creates a little bit of anxiety in you and you're like, he's rebellious. No, I'm not. He said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Well, we can use Zoom. Come on. We tried that, didn't we? Now, can accommodations be made? Can adjustments be made? Am I going to stand up here and rail about COVID? No, I'm just telling you, for example, when we make a decision based on convictions led by the Holy Spirit in obedience to his word, there's going to be people who won't like it. And they're going to say and do things to make us change what we're doing. When we get ostracized, marginalized, lied about, fired, disowned. You said five till, it's ten till, but whatever, Lee, that's fine. Love you. When Christians are rounded up, thrown in prisons, enslaved, tortured, or killed, and it sure doesn't look like the church is growing, and it sure doesn't feel like we're being purified or pruned. And we can't figure out what our sin is. So we like don't know what adjustment to make. Here's the thing that Christ is doing. He is being right there with us, participating in some sense that's a mystery to me, participating in that suffering. Wait a minute. You said you disagree with that idea that Jesus is still suffering. Correct. It's correct. I, I didn't say Jesus is indifferent to Christian suffering, though. I said he's not suffering. He hasn't stopped caring, right? Some of you seem like you're not sure. Do you think Jesus doesn't care about you? Jesus hasn't stopped caring, right? That was better. So what's he doing? When Christians are being rounded up, thrown in prison, executed, what's Jesus doing? When we're being marginalized, ostracized, slandered, lied about, what is Jesus doing? Is he like passively observing? Uh, yes, I see what's happening. Is he, is he watching with mild disinterest or... Is he in some mystery where he is still perfectly glorified, perfectly content, seated at the right hand of God, also afflicted right alongside his people? Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the spirit helps in our weakness for we don't know what to pray as we ought. The spirit himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes with the saints according to the will of God. If one member of the body suffers, what does the rest of the body do? Suffers. What, excluding the head? He's the head of the body, the church. A member of the body is suffering. What is Christ doing? Suffering alongside that member. But it's not a continuation of his sacrifice. It is not an atoning suffering. It's a sympathetic heart which Jesus has for all his people. So I'm telling you that even though Jesus isn't suffering like he did on earth, he is still lovingly engaged with us in the midst of our sorrow and suffering because he cares. In some way, it must affect his heart when we're going through profound difficulties, but we aren't adding anything to the balance of what he endured when he was on earth. 
conducting his ministry of redemption. I think mostly what Paul means is that by suffering, Paul is participating in the kind of suffering that Jesus endured for the sake of his church. So there's the, it's both pieces. Look, God cares, right? Well, you can't care and never feel negative emotion when you see something that you care about going wrong. God, in, 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 the, same, in the same person, is able to say and really experience, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but desire that all men everywhere should repent and decree that some don't. I don't know. I, I can't explain it. I don't fully understand it. I'm not going to talk about the tension that exists. But Jesus, at the same time, is all done suffering to redeem people and yet is afflicted alongside us. That's one. Two, the hostility of the evil one is now directed at us in as much as he can't get to Christ anymore. This makes us more Christ-like when we suffer. It fills up what is lacking in our part of suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's not adding anything to Jesus or Jesus' work. We don't add to the atonement. We don't add to Christ's merit, but we do partake in the kind of trouble, persecution, and pain that he endured as our redeemer. We do experience something of what he experienced when he was smitten, stricken, and afflicted unjustifiably. How is that possible? We're not sinlessly perfect. Don't we deserve every bad thing that happens to us? Didn't Dave Ramsey teach you to say better than I deserve when somebody asks you how you're doing? Well, I deserve hell. Do you? Do you still? Or have you been ransomed and redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ? Has your name been written down in the Lamb's book of life? Do you still deserve hell? What, Jesus didn't do enough? Yeah, but I'm still a sinner. I understand that. I'm not saying we're not still sinning. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm saying either the debt was paid or it wasn't. So if we don't any longer deserve hell because we stand in the fold justified by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, if we don't deserve hell, then what is happening when I'm suffering is something similar to what happened when Jesus suffered. Because I don't deserve it. I'm not adding my peace to the cross. I'm not increasing the merit of Jesus Christ by my suffering. But the experience that I'm having when I'm falsely accused, when I'm slandered, when I find out that people are saying, you know, that church that James is pastoring is evil. When I hear things like that, I remember, oh, that's what it was like for Jesus. Am I Jesus? Uh, negative, Ghost Rider, far from it. But I'm having an experience which knits my heart to his. And that kind of suffering is done on behalf of others. I can't see my faith being purified by this. I can't see how I'm being pruned by this. I don't think I'm being disciplined by this. Sometimes our suffering is about other people's encouragement. 
we're, we're, we're only getting a taste, amen? He drank the dregs. The outcome, nonetheless, is similar. Throughout history, martyrs have impressed upon the watching world the fact that those who have been redeemed from sin and death can be threatened, cajoled, beaten, set on fire, sawn in half, stretched out on a rack, nailed to a cross, and they won't take back their profession of faith. Martyrs have proven to the watching world. So then they they start scratching their heads and going, hmm. Hmm. And maybe it's not until we're dead, but they start investigating Jesus. They start trying to understand what would make somebody so committed. Who is this Jesus anyway? Why are these Christians willing to endure such abuse when they could just deny their faith and live? Why are Christians so willing to experience suffering when they could just deny their faith and it would end? Why is that? Why are these Christians unwilling to approve of whatever the world approves of? Why is that? Why are these Christians content to be mocked, ridiculed, and they don't mock and ridicule in return? These are questions that the world asks when they look at the martyrs. Why are these Christians willing to be locked up, slapped around, beaten, laughed at, set on fire, shot, stabbed, hung, or otherwise murdered? And like Jesus' kindness to his enemies brought the centurion to the place where he looked at Christ on the cross in the moments after he yielded up his spirit, the centurion looked at Jesus and said, surely that is the Son of God. And in the same way, the lost and dying world ought to look at us as we're enduring persecution and start to wonder if maybe there's something to this gospel. See, now your suffering isn't about you. It's about somebody else. How amazing is that? And how deprived are you if you just go through like, well, I deserve every bad thing that happens to me. Oh, Okay, so the world doesn't get to watch you suffer and behold the truth of the gospel because you deserve everything you're going through. Do you see the consequences of wrong thinking? Uh, The alternative to everything that I just said, in case you're wondering, is, is that Christ doesn't really care what you go through and suffering is meaningless. So I guess if you don't like what I've just presented, then that, that's, those are your choice. Jesus doesn't care and it's all meaningless. I think that would be heresy, amen? Christ suffered for the church and Paul is telling us when we suffer persecution, we are also suffering on account of the church. When persecution happens, it is always, always a reality that we suffer for the sake of the church. When persecution happens, I'm not talking about you sinned and got caught and now you're embarrassed. That's different than persecution. When per- that's why Peter says, don't let any of you suffer as an evildoer. That's discipline. That's Hebrews 12, which we already talked about. If you are being persecuted, it's for the sake of the church. Now that's something you'll find yourself rejoicing over when it happens. Jesus is here with me. What I'm enduring, I'm enduring for the sake of his church. How could you not rejoice that God has counted you worthy to partake in the same kind of suffering that Jesus Christ did? That kind of swells the heart, doesn't it? You won't have to muster joy. 
Don't sit and be afraid that you're too much of a coward. When persecution comes, you're going to run and miss all the blessing. Because I promise you, you won't have to muster courage either. When the moment comes, the grace comes. Part of the problem and the reason that there's so much anxiety in the church is we sit around trying to create grace before we need it. Well, what if persecution happens? Let me stockpile ammo and food and water. Like, all right, fine, that's cool, do that if you want to have practical resources around. But we've got to be willing at some point to get stretched out on a rack and die, right? I don't like the idea, but I've got to be willing to, for the sake of what's right, endure what's wrong. And then in those moments when I'm enduring it, I'm going to trust God that he will give me the words to speak, the courage to speak them, and the strength to endure whatever it is that I have to endure. I'm not going to sit and fret about what might happen. I'm going to wait till it does happen. And when it does happen, I'm going to know a couple of things are true. Number one, Jesus, while he has filled up everything that he needed to in the way of suffering, is yet afflicted alongside me as I'm going through it. He cares. He's engaged. Second, I'm going to know that somebody lost and dying in their sin or somebody who is a child of God is going to watch what I'm going through and they're going to find Jesus because of it. And that's going to swell my heart. So that's it. Paul's rejoicing that he's been allowed to participate in revealing the mystery of the gospel and the fact of his suffering does not diminish that rejoicing. The fact of his suffering enhances it. We'll get into what he means by mystery in the coming weeks. But do you see his logic? Verse 25, he's rejoicing in his suffering because he knows, in verse 25, he's been made a minister by God. Through his ministry, he's making the gospel fully known. That's 25. I didn't make myself a minister. God made me a minister. He's rejoicing in his suffering because he knows, verse 26, new saints are being brought to the fold because of what Paul is enduring. So instead of being convinced the gospel is nonsense by Christian suffering, people are convinced that the gospel is authentic by Christian suffering. He is rejoicing in his suffering because he knows, verse 27, Christ is being portrayed as visible to lost people by what Paul is suffering. Do you see it in 27? This vivid picture of Jesus is painted every time a believer endures persecution by the enemies of God. He's rejoicing in his suffering because he knows, verse 28, that the church is being matured, increased, encouraged, and edified by the shame Paul is enduring for Christ's sake. Other Christians are not discouraged when they see someone willing to suffer. That's a big mouthful because sometimes we are, right? Like we see other people suffering and we're like, oof, hope I'm not next. It's okay, we think that. But other Christians are not discouraged when they see someone else willing to suffer. In the providence of God, other Christians are ultimately made more firm in their faith when we witness a brother or sister patiently enduring. I have watched some of you go through what seemed like hell. And it didn't make me think, uh-oh, I deserve that too. I, nah. No, I watched you go through it and I thought God was sufficient for them. 
more reason for me to believe he will be for me. He's rejoicing in his suffering because, verse 29, Christ's spirit, the Holy Spirit, is filling Paul with wisdom, strength, patience, endurance, and confidence in the midst of his trial. So in closing, will he fill you when persecution comes, and so will you rejoice, and so will Christ be magnified. Amen? Let's pray.